Job chapter 8 is where we turn this morning. Job chapter 8 is the second speech of the friend, second speech, second friend's speech uh, to Job. And he has a particular train of thought that was just right in line with what Eliphaz had already spoken to Job and what the next, the third friend will speak to Job. And Job's response is somewhat going back to what Eliphaz had spoken before, but what Bildad is going to speak now. And it comes, as we've looked at a few times now, the friends approach, their philosophy, their worldview, how they interpret everything in life is based on these two axioms or two truths. Suffering follows sin. That's how, that's how it happens. If you're suffering, that's because you're sinful. And so if you want to have blessing, then you need to be pious. And then their respect, it means repent, seek God, turn to him, have faith in him. Maybe not even have faith in him. Just turn to him, acknowledge him, and be a, a good person because God blesses good people. That's their attitude. And he curses or he causes suffering to bad people. And so that's, that's their whole rubric. That's everything they, they understand the, uh, the world by. And Job says, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a good person. And it's not in a negative sense that I'm, he's claiming things that aren't true about himself. No, he really is a good fellow. And if we wanted to even read, I, w- I was hoping I d- could do this. I don't think I'll take the time this morning to do it. If we were to read Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, but leave out the heavenly court scenes, leave those things out so we don't want to know anything that, that uh, Job does not know by himself. We just want to know what is true about him. First, I mean, even the first verse, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He's a good fella, right? All those four characteristics, that's good stuff about this guy, Job. It goes on and says he's the greatest of the sons of the East because he has all these you know, big families, got all these possessions, verse 3. He's very conscientious even about sin. He, he's not, he's, he doesn't say, well, I'm a good person. I don't ever sin. All my kids are fine. They're saved. You know, like, like Wobegon, you know, all the children are above, norm, above average, rather. And no, his kids, he knows that they can be susceptible or, or give in to temptation. They might possibly have cursed God in their hearts. And so he offers sacrifices for them. This is a good and godly man. But then you skip down to verse 13. It happened that all these calamities came upon him. His, his wealth was destroyed, his children were killed, and his response is, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there, Yahweh gave, Yahweh is taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. And so he rests in that. He doesn't understand it. He didn't have, you know, I skipped over some verses. You can read those, but Job didn't know what was going on there. All he knew is what was going on in his situation, in his, in his, his bank account, in his family table. There's loss, there's absent, there's nothing here. It's been taken away in a moment, right? I think somebody said it, can, it took about 39 seconds to read all those statements of these servants that came one after another, after another, after another. And Job is just decimated, tore his robe and all these things. Well, that wasn't the end of it. If you were to look down in verse 7 of chapter 2, Job was struck with terrible boils from the t- uh, sole of his foot to the top of his head. He took a pot shirt to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Well, wait a minute. He is suffering. So obviously, according to his friends that came, he is a sinful, wicked man. But we know about him that he is a good blameless. He's blameless, not sinless. He's blameless. He has taken care of his sin. He's trying to walk in humility before the Lord, fearing God. He turns away from evil. It's not... He's not dismissing the fact that he could sin or that his kids could sin, but he's looking specifically for sacrifice 
to cover the sin of his children, and you can expect that to be so of himself. And you think, well, he knew all about those sacrifices, right? No, he didn't know about his sacrifices and the Mosaic Mosaic Law, all those things that God gave for his people. This time of, of Job predates that, about 600 years or more. It's the time of Abraham, not the time of Moses. And so he didn't know these things, but he did know that the only way to approach God, the only way to please God is through sacrifice. And you can go back to Genesis 3 and chapter and Genesis 4 to see that when uh, Cain and Abel presented sacrifices, one was the, the fruit of, the, of uh, you know, the bush and the, and the vegetation, vegetables, right? Versus sacrifice of, from the flock, sacrifice of an animal that Abel presented. God regarded Abel's sacrifice, but did not regard Cain's. And so we get that lesson If you want to approach God, it's got to come through blood. If not your own blood, then something else has to die in your place. Job understood that and would come and deal with his sin in an honest fashion. He was was blameless in that regard. So when the friends are approaching this, because they see the suffering, they see the loss that Job has gone through, well, Job, you're a sinful guy. Just become pious and God will bless you. He'll bless your socks off. In fact, Job says that, or Bildad says that in so many words back in chapter 8 that we'll look through. As we see, uh, again, we're going to deal with a a large section, chapters 8 through 10, in fact, this morning, and kind of emphasizing some of the key points. His first speech, because all three uh, friends speak three times, except for Zophar only has two speeches. But Bildad, this is his first speech, and he approaches kind of in a a straightforward kind of a way, but still, kind of gently, and I, I say not even kindly gently, his first statement is really harsh. Really, what? You said that? I mean, if his wife was there, she would have given the bill that. How could you say such a thing like that? Well, they're trying to help Job. Or at least they're trying to protect themselves. If they can get Job back online, then there's hope for them too. That, okay, we won't face the same suffering that, that Job has had. And so they're trying to sort these things out, but they're sorting it according to their, their single rule, suffering follows sin, Blessing follows piety, and so he he approaches it that way. Bildad really emphasizes the justice of God. Uh, Eliphaz had had focused more on the holiness of God, and and now Bildad is is focusing on justice, which Job will follow up with about justice. And he he responds, and he kind of starts out well, right? Verse 2 of chapter 8. How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? In other words, Job, you're full of hot air. Why don't you just shut up? Why don't you just take a lesson and stop talking? Because what you're saying is not helpful. It is not good. And the question is, verse 3, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? And yet the question obviously is assuming the answer. Well, no, God doesn't pervert or twist uh, justice. He doesn't change those things. He doesn't bend them or do cruel things. Uh, He is always just. He's always right. Always, always, always. There are no exceptions. He's always just and right in this life. It's always what they're, what they're saying. They don't have an expectation of God exercising justice in the afterlife, in the future life, the life after death. They're saying, no, God settles accounts right here and right now. And you better be careful how you treat God. God will bring justice. He will do what is right. And then verse 4, if your sons, or if you don't mind, since your sons sinned against him, hey, he sent them into the power of their transgression. In other words, they got what they deserved. How rude, how callous, how harsh is that statement? I mean, this is, okay, it's maybe months after the, the deaths of his son, the loss of all these things, you know, time for 
for the news of, of Job's calamity to, to reach out and spread. It didn't, wouldn't have taken that long because Job is, he's, he, he, everybody knows about Job. He's the greatest of the sons of the East. And yet they came, they appointed a time, they came to be with Job and they sat with him seven days, quietly, not talking anything. And then of course Job lamented in chapter three and so forth and, all, and the ball gets rolling there. But they are uh, sometime after this whole calamity is still fresh on Job's mind because he's still sitting there, still sitting on the ash heap. And he just says this very rude thing, but it is exactly right based on their understanding. God is just and he exercised justice you know, upon these, these people. But in that statement even, there's a little bit of hope for Job because the, the assumption is, hey, Job, Bildad says, you're still alive. So you must not have sinned so bad as those other guys, your, your kids, you know, those nasty people. Ugh. So there's hope for you. And he, he gives a response or, or give, gives a solution to this. Verse 5, if you, Job, oh Job, if you would seek God earnestly and plead for the grace of the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, indeed now he would rouse himself for you and make your righteous abode at peace. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. What is this solution? Verse 5, seek God. Plead for the grace of the Almighty. Now, when he says plead for the grace of the Almighty, he's not saying, you know, cast yourselves at the mercy of God, ask God for mercy. He's just saying, hey, uh, you need to turn to God. You need to make sure that you implore him, ask him for these things, kind of get your, your, your things in order. It's kind of like if you're going for a, I don't know, trying to get a loan for whatever it is, and you've got to get your paperwork in order, get all your things, and then present it. Say, hey, have I earned this? You know, Job, if you just clean up your act, you just confess those sins, whatever they are in your life, and then present yourself to God, then he will restore you. He will, and my paraphrase, bless your socks off. Though your beginning was insignificant, which is kind of downplaying, wait a minute, he is the wealthiest guy? He is the greatest of the sons of the East? He says, even so, your end will increase greatly. You'll have more and more and more. And notice... The friends are fixated on the loss of Job's everything. His health, of course, but his wealth, more, more importantly, and the family to certain, but the wealth, I mean, the money, the gold, the, the oxen, the donkeys, all those things. You will have such blessing from the Lord if you just seek him and, and get your life in order and present yourself to him, and then he will bless you. Remember, blessing follows piety in their, in their understanding. Job isn't so fixated on the loss of his wealth, he, he's suffering, he hurts. I mean, we see that constantly in his comments that he, he's just weighed down with suffering and all these things. But he doesn't ask for health. He doesn't ask for these boils to be healed up and the stopping the sores. He doesn't ask for you know, sheep and donkeys and oxen and, all the, and the servants and the children. He's more concerned about his relationship with God. Take it or leave it. I don't, I, the stuff God can give, God takes away... Forget about that. But what is my relationship with him? How, do, how can I relate to him? Again, the friends are so consumed about the wealth, so much about this world, so much. That, you know, they're lovers of the world, as Jesus would say about the Pharisees. They loved the things of this world. They loved everything about it. But what about God? They're, not saying, they're, they're saying true things about God, but not in the right context, not with the proper nuance of, yes, God is just, but he's also merciful. Yes, he treats the blameless and the blameful, if you don't mind, the wicked, differently, ultimately. But in this life, uh, it's, it's kind of 
up for grabs. God is, is safe. God is, excuse me, God is good. He's not safe. We can trust him. Yea, though he slay me, Job will say later, I will trust in him. I, I don't know what he's doing. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. But I know God is good. I want to stand before God. I want to have a really right relationship with him. Understanding that God does not pervert justice is true, but only in the ultimate sense. Because in the meanwhile, we just studied this Thursday night in our men's uh, and boys Bible study, God is patient, not willing, not wanting, not wishing for anybody to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Wait a minute, so God is delaying justice? Mercifully, yes. Because why is anybody still alive on the face of the earth? Because God is so patient. He has not, as, as Bildad said, sent them into the power of their transgression. And we pray sometimes, as the psalmists have prayed, God, do you see that wicked person? Cut him down. Shut him up. Stop his evil agenda from being accomplished. It's okay to pray that. But you have to recognize that God has purposes even in evil work, even in evil agendas, evil actions. God is sovereign over these things. God is not responsible for those sins, but he is working all things out for his wonderful, glorious purposes. He is jealous for his own glory. He will not share that with anybody. He's not going to you know, help to help other people uh, take that glory for themselves. He is zealous, jealous for his own glory. And so we can rest in that, that he will set everything to right. Everything will be set right in that future day. But if we don't see it now, well, if we don't see it now, read Hebrews 11. They were looking for a city that they hadn't, that wasn't on earth. They were looking for a reward that wasn't available. It wasn't something in the in, you know, tangible, something they could experience now. They were looking for that promise of God, even to be in the presence of God. Faith is important. Bildad is not saying, hey, just believe God, just enter into his grace. No, work yourself, get yourself into a good position and present yourself to God. He'll accept you, he'll make you so good. And, he, and then he goes on, verse 8, gives some examples that our fathers know about this. Please ask the past generations. And he really even says, please ask the first generation or the fathers. Now we're talking about the patriarch age, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So who are the fathers we're talking about? Well, why not Adam? Why not Seth? Why not some of those guys who, who knew these things, knew how God acts, knew how, I mean, good grief, what happened to Cain? He was evil, and so God judged him. Well, see, that's, that solves it then, right? God judges the evil. Wait a minute, what happened to Abel? Abel was a blameless fella, and what happened? He, he's still living, right? No, Cain killed him. Bildad, your rubric to explain life fails right then. Here's an evil guy prospering, goes out and builds a city, gives, gives all these things. Abel, excuse me, he's dying, he is dead in the field. His blood is crying out to God. What's that about? Explain that, explain that Bill. That How do you explain that? He is putting words in the, in the past generation's mouth. He says, look, we, we're only of yesterday. We don't know anything. We're, our lives are so short, we can't put these things together. But listen to them, verse 10. Will they not instruct you and tell you and bring forth words from their hearts? So he tells, tells them, look, look at the... Look at the records. Look at the ancient uh, words that we have written down for us or, or even by word of mouth. And, and you'll learn about this. But then he gives some examples from nature, beginning at verse 11. He talks about pap papyrus and rushes. Those are the same thing, but the same plant. He says, look, uh, the, can, can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? And the answer is no. Uh, the, these papyrus uh, plants, very um, popular Famous, much much used in Egypt along the Nile. They need a lot of water and they need some warmth. If you take 
one of those those two things away, then they will perish. But in the meanwhile, when they have water, when they have the proper environment, they grow up, they grow eight to 10 feet tall. They're lush, their foliage is just so great. They're very useful, very useful plants for uh, making uh, baskets. Remember when Moses was put into a papyrus or reed basket and floated on the Nile? Uh, and then, of course, you can read the rest of that narrative in Exodus. Or it can be used for making papyrus sheets for, for letters. It can be used for making even boats. It's a very useful plant. But Bildad says, while it's still green and not cut down, verse 12, yet it dries up before any other plant. Wait a minute. It's still green. It's, it's still looking good. It's, we're going to have a great harvest. Oh, I can already see the boats, the skiffs, the wonderful things, these mats, these papyrus. I'm going to make all these things. But then all of a sudden the water is gone and the plant dies. It's useless. No, it's no good. Wait a minute. It looks so good. We could have, yesterday we could have harvested and used Now it's gone. It is cut off. Uh, it dries up before any other plant. And verse 13, the lesson is, so are the paths of all who forget God. And the hope of the godless will perish. So, be careful, Job. Don't be a godless person. Don't forget God. Don't, it's not like, who's God again? No, it's to forget in the sense of Pharaoh when he said, who is God that I should honor him? I don't know who he is. I don't know if it's Yahweh. Besides, I'm not going to let the people go. It's that kind of thing. Not just a, a forgetfulness. I don't recall who you're talking about, but I don't recognize him. I refuse to acknowledge he is my authority, my God. And so they will be, they will perish, he says. Then he gives another example in verse 14. These persons, these godless persons, confidence is fragile and whose trust a spider's web. If you were to look for a spider's web, hopefully you won't find any in the current facility, but if you were to look at a spider's web and then you start just wanting to lean on it, starting to, to use it in a structure for building your house or something, I want to take this spider's web and use it to, to support my, my first floor. This foolishness. What are you thinking of doing that for? Their confidence is fragile, whose trust is a spider's web. Verse 15 Kind of, you can. He relies on his house, or the word house can also refer to back to the, the web. He relies on this web, but does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it's not established. So he gives the example that this the life of a godless, wicked person is fragile. It is not something that can uh, be. It's not a secure situation. Kind of reminds you what Paul says to Timothy in First Timothy six, that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. People pine after it, but listen. You tell those rich people, those who are rich in the present world, don't put your confidence, your hope, in the uncertainty of riches. Wait a minute. It's kind of like this. Don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches. You're trying to put your confidence in riches, but you can't even do that. The only thing you can put your hope in is the, the uncertainty of it, which is one step removed. It's like you try to reach for something and it's behind a glass or a brick wall. I mean, you'd be able to see it. So I guess it's a glass wall. You try to reach for it. You can't even do that. But you say, oh, but I see it right there. And my hope is based on that, but I can't get to it. That's what this hope is. Those who try to trust in fragile spider webs, those who try to trust in riches, First Timothy 6 goes on to describe, don't do it. But that's what happens to these godless people. He relies on these things. It's not established. Verse 16 can be taken in a positive or negative sense. It's kind of... Interesting how that how that goes on. Let's see. Here we go. That the this person, this godless person, thrives before the sun. So when the sun is beating down, right, this person is still doing okay, right? His shoots go out all over the garden. His roots wrap around a rock pile. He looks upon a house of stones. You know, he's just he's being all proud and he's established. But then, 
verse 18, if he, God, swallows him up, why does he swallow him up? Because we're talking about the godless people, those who hate God, those who refuse him. God exercises judgment, justice upon the wicked. And so look what happens to him. He, if God, swallows him up from his place, I believe that verse, is that the same word? I forget. I noticed that somewhere. Remember when God said, Satan, you incited me to swallow him up for no purpose? I think that's the same word. I'd have to, I don't see it in my notes right now, but I think that's the same. So the idea is if God exercises justice upon this person, then that place where he is saying, I don't, I never knew you. I never saw you. It's gone. There's no recollection of this wicked person being established. They they were being so wonderful, and now they're gone. And he says the end product, end result here is that God confirms the blameless. Verses 20 to the end of the chapter. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor will he strengthen the hand of the evildoers. God will not. This is, again, his his rule, his, his law. God does not reject in other words, God accepts, always accepts, and guards and protects and, and treats as, as uh, honorable people these uh, blameless men. Which that word blameless, you remember back in Genesis, or excuse me, Job, Job 1 and verse 1? Job was blameless. Who's, who said that? Well, it's in the narrative. And if you don't mind, we'll kind of give a peek into the heavenly court. God said Job is blameless twice from his own mouth. So we can accept God will not reject. God has not rejected Job. Now, that doesn't fit in Bildad's estimation. No, Job, you're a, you are a wicked man. You're an evildoer, as he says in verse 20. And so just seek God. Turn from your, from your wickedness and God will, will turn your situation. Verse 21, he will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting and those who hate you will be clothed with shame. The tent of the wicked will be no longer. So God will both honor Job and protect him from those who are uh, opponents of him, that he will humiliate them. He will exercise shame upon them. They will enter into that judgment, that justice that God had relented of regarding Job because Job got his act together. Well, Bildad says, hey, this is, this is my counsel. And he says, Job, you ought to listen. Just shut your, shut your mouth and listen to what we have to say. And if you don't listen to me, listen to the forefathers. And if you don't listen to them, take a lesson from nature, man. Just look and see how this goes on. And Job responds in, in chapter 9 and 10, chapters 9 and 10. And he says, look, I want justice just the same as you. And even verse 2, he says, in truth, I know this is so. To a certain degree, and some people say, is Job speaking sarcastically, like saying, oh yeah, that's right. Oh, Bildad, you got it nailed. You nailed it right on the head. Kind of in an ironic, you're exactly wrong kind of a thing. Or it could be, I know generally that's how it happens. I I see the hand of God, both for blessing and for cursing or or calamity. And yet, my big issue is not about the, the stuff. How can a man be in the right before God? That's the question. He says... I acknowledge God does not pervert justice, but how can anybody be in the right before God? If this is so, there's nobody blameless because he looks back in his life and says, I've done everything he wanted me to do. I I tried to find God and honor him and honor him in my family. I've tried to honor him in everything. And then this is the situation I'm in. So if I am the best of the best godly person and this is what happened to me, what hope does anybody have? standing in the right before God? How is anybody going to have this this acceptance before God? How in the world can we have an expectation that we can be declared innocent to be in the right, that we can be declared righteous? This this Job, throughout this this response and later, he, he is speaking in a, in a 
court or a forensic or a legal sense, standing before God in, in a court of law, how can anybody, being, uh, being a defendant, somebody has a charge, how can anybody present his case and be accepted, being right before God because of all these things? And he, he starts by saying, look, God is... God is, well, let me, let me summarize this. Let me go back. Job's response, chapters 9 and 10. Job is searching for justice from God. This is chapter 9. Chapter 10 is just, he returns to a lament. You know, I've got nothing. I can't do anything. I may as well just die. I don't understand why I'm alive. And so he's searching for justice, but he says, I'm never going to get it. And he, we'll see how he's doing that. But then he says, look, I, my only hope, my only expectation is that God would leave me alone just for a moment so I can smile, have a little bit of joy, and then I'll die. Because that's, that's it. And then, he, and then he just ends it. And then the next guy talks. But in chapter 9, we, we can see this. And I'm sorry that they put, came up all at the same time. Job is searching for justice from God. He's saying in verses 2 and 4, 2 to 4, how can anybody answer God? How can anybody look to God and say, look, I've got this going for me. I've got this going for me. I'm, I'm this person. And you said, by the way, you said, these are the stipulations. If I met these requirements to enter into your presence that, that uh, I, I could do it. And so I'm, I'm meeting these requirements. So let me in. Job says, nobody ever could say that. Who can answer God? Who can answer God's accusations? Nobody. So verses two to four, he says, look, if verse three says, if one desired to contend, this is in a legal sense, to respond or to argue with him in a court of law with him, he could not answer. This is the, the person, the, the person speaking to God. That person cannot uh, answer him once in a thousand times. God is too powerful. Notice verse four, wise in heart, mighty in power, who has stiffened his neck against him and been at peace. You can't win against God. There's no way. You can have any kind of expectation of victory. Verses 5 through 13 reflect or celebrate the power of God, which are beautiful, beautiful. It's a hymn of praise. It's, a, it's true statements about who God is. And yet it's not giving any comfort to Job. The very opposite. It is destroying any hope that he has, any, any, any confidence of acceptance before God. Look, he is the one who removes the mountains. They don't know how they did it. The mountains don't know how they did it. People don't know how God, how did God move that mountain? when he overturns them in his anger. Notice, by the way, in these verses, <coughs> he, Job speaks about mountains here in verse 5. Then he goes on a, bit, a little bit larger perspective. Verses six, uh, well, verse 6 says, He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. So he's talking about that mountain over there. Now he's talking about the whole planet. God shakes everything. We could be talking about earthquakes. could be talking about volcanic activity. By the way, if you were to to consider, again, where is he speaking? Because he mentions snow here in a little bit, uh, washing his hands with snow and all this. The question is, where do these things happen? If you look on the map, probably there are two locations where Job lived. See the Dead Sea down at the bottom, the big long thing. Just to the south and east of that is one place where it's uh, suspected, suggested that Job lived. Uh, Edom is a, a, or modern-day Syria, no, it'd be Saudi Arabia. No, Jordan, excuse me, Jordan's right over there. Another option of where Job lived is northwest, northeast rather, of the Sea of Galilee. You see that harp-shaped looking sea up there to the northeast of that. In the northeast of that, actually just north of the Sea of Galilee, is a big volcanic region. In fact, the rift, you can see that Jordan rift, is all about earthquakes. That's where two tectonic plates go back and forth. So earthquakes are very common in this region. But in the north, volcanoes. 
and you can see basalt, the evidence of, of volcanoes all throughout there. So he could either be talking about volcanoes, earthquakes, whatever it is in his experience. God does that. He moves mountains. He shakes the earth. Even the pillars tremble. But then he goes beyond that. Mountains, earth, to the stars. To the stars outside of this. Verse 7. The one who says for the sun, hey, don't shine today. Just turn off for a little bit. God can do that? Yes, God can do that. Now, it could be, by the way, in relation to volcanic activity, it could be a naturalistic explanation that when the <laughs> volcano erupts, that there's dust and stuff and it obscures the sun for a time. could be talking about that. Or it could be talking, God can just turn off the sun. God can cause it not to shine. He sets a seal. He restricts the stars so that they don't shine. Uh, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Now he comes back down to earth. So he's talking about enlarging, enlarging the perspective. Then he comes back down, talking about the sea. I mean, good grief. If you were to look at the sea, even on a good day, that is power. That is, you don't even know what is in the water. You don't know what the currents are doing. You don't know anything about it. It's just power, power on display. And even in the, in the Canaanite uh, perspective, attributing certain gods and goddesses to physical actions or physical uh, uh, features, the sea is, is a chaotic, hostile god against, against God, Almighty, Yahweh. And so he could be talking about that, that God himself, Yahweh, tramples down the waves of the, even the gods that are hostile to him. You think, how can the gods be? There's only one god, yes, but there are supernatural forces at play here and the Canaanites had an explanation and so we could be referring to that. Verses 9 or verse 9 rather says who makes the bear Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south. These are constellations that are set in heavens and you can mark seasons and days and and time by these things. They don't change. God is, is powerful over all these things. Verse 10 he does great things unsearchable and wondrous works innumerable. Notice you have a statement of quality and quantity unsearchable. You can't get to the bottom of it. It is beyond understanding. It is something that you can't figure out, but then it's beyond number. So both both in terms of, of quality and, or quantity rather, excuse me, quality and quantity, it's beyond us. Great things, wondrous things that we can't even understand. And even in verse 11 and 12, if he were to, to come by me, sweep by me, I wouldn't see him. If he were to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away who could turn him back and who could say to him, what are you doing? So contrary to what Eliphaz said, remember Eliphaz had a dream, a vision, some spirit came by and it was kind of woo-woo, all this kind of thing. And Job says, if God were to do that to me, I would have no idea that he came by me. I would not see him. I would not perceive him. Very similar, similar language to when Elijah, Eliyah is, Eliyahu is with uh, God in the in the in Sinai and God you know has this big earthquake and then he has the the fire and the wind and all and then God is there Elijah did not perceive him in these other naturalistic things but then he heard saw God himself because God revealed himself to the prophet Job doesn't have that expectation I can't understand him God is too powerful for me I can't I can't even do it verse 13 God will not turn back his anger beneath them crouch the helpers of Rahab or Rahab which is another allusion perhaps to the Canaanite gods and the, the hostile, chaotic uh, gods that are, are against God himself. Relates to the idea of Leviathan. Uh, Job has mentioned him already. God is going to re- mention him in chapter 41 quite a, quite a bit. 
and saying, you can't even control him. How dare you think you can control me or explain me or, or put me into a box and say, this is always how God acts. Don't ever do that to God. You cannot uh, turn back his anger. You cannot explain God in ways that he does not allow himself to be explained. He goes on, verse 14 and following, he says, I, I can't answer him. Obviously, I can't. Nobody can. He's too powerful. And so, verse 14, how then can I answer him and choose my words before him? Look, if I, even if I were right, I couldn't give an answer. I couldn't defend myself. I would have to plead for the grace of my judge. I'd have to plead for mercy. I'd have to say, I've got nothing. But look, even if I did call, verse 16, and he answered me, I couldn't believe he was giving ear to my voice. I, I, how would, God is so big. Why would he pay attention to me? I've tried to live for him, and this is what happened, and he's so powerful, I can't even come up, approach him, and so I have no expectation that I would have any justice from God because he has ind- indicated it here, and it will say it and repeat it several times, God is being unjust to Job. Job thinks God is not doing right by him. This is not. This was not part of the contract, not part of the deal, never part of my expectation of being in right relationship with God. And so he is, verse 17, bruising me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds. How? Without cause. God is being mean. He is being careless, perhaps, and we're going to get into that in just a moment, about his, his neglect of his creature. But he's doing it without cause, which is the same thing that God had said to Satan. Why did you incite me to swallow him up without cause? Without any reason. There was no reason. No, there's a reason. It's for God's glory, right? This is what we understand in chapter 1, chapter 2. It's for God's glory. God is the, the whole issue of Job is the worship of God, the understanding of God, that he is God, nobody else. And how you respond to him is not through your works. It's not through figuring out. It's not through you know, being a, a pious person. It is through faith in him, trusting him, resting him. And even as Job will say here at the end of the chapter, uh, a, a very specific way that we'll get to in just a moment. But he says, look, I, I don't have any expectation. I'll get justice. He will not allow me, verse 18, to get my breath. He saturates me with bitterness. Everything about my life is tainted with this stuff. I can't find any comfort. Remember, he says, I, I'm trying to go to sleep at night and there's no comfort in that. Even if I do fall asleep, I'm, I'm just uh, destroyed with nightmares and dreams and visions. It's horrible. I wake up and I've got the, my, my sores and everything have, have, have become more infected and they're just bad and, and my breast smells. and It's just horrible, horrible situation. He's saturated with bitterness. And then he says, verse 19, if it's a matter of power, behold, he is the mighty one. If it's a matter of justice, who can make him testify? He is the mighty one. So there's nobody who can out-wrestle him or, or you know, arm-wrestle him and say, okay, I got you. No, he's, he's the mighty one. He is beyond compare. Uh, it's not a matter of strength. If somebody could just out, outpower, outmaneuver God, if it's a matter of justice, nobody can force him to give an answer. Nobody can say, God, you've been subpoenaed. You must appear in court. Many people have tried that, by the way, um, lawsuits against God for any number of reasons. But God has never appeared in court. You kind of wonder why, why does that happen? Well, because God is, is beyond these things. He's, he's bigger than all these things. Not to say that God is unjust. We would never want to approach that. God is good, always good, always perfect, always knowing every possible situation. Because the only possible situations are those that God has intended. It's not, well, what if this happens? Well, that's not going to happen because God did not allow that. That was not part of his will. Anyway, we see back in verse 20, I know I'm righteous. I know I'm blameless. 
But my mouth, I'll, I'll, somehow I'll say something that condemns me. And besides, he'll just declare me perverse, just twisted, wrong, ruined. And verse 21, staccato, just very, very short sentences for phrases. I'm blameless. I don't know my soul. I reject my life. It's all one. What kind of hope does he have? Nothing. I, I was operating under this understanding. Bill, that I know, yes, God blesses the blameless and he punishes the evildoers. What about me? I'm the exception. Eliphaz, I know what you're talking about. That's not me. You're not talking about my situation. I know I'm blameless. Therefore, he says, look, verse 22, he consumes, he devours, he eats up the blameless with the wicked. God is just indiscriminate. He makes everybody suffer. Doesn't matter who you are. Blameless and the wicked, he consumes. Verse 23, if the scourge puts to death suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Wait a minute. God mocks the despair of the innocent? No. The earth is given to the hand of the wicked. He covers the, God covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? God is sovereign, right? Everybody in Job will acknowledge God is sovereign. But Job says, if he's sovereign, why are these evil things happening? Why does God condemn the blameless and the wicked. Remember, even the, con the contest, if you don't mind, that Abraham had with God. God, if there are 50, let's say 50 blameless, godly people in Sodom, would you, would you destroy the whole city on, just in, and those 50 with them? He says, no, I wouldn't destroy the 50 or the city because of the 50. Well, what if there are only 45 and you go on down that? And, and 10, right? If there were 10, I'll stop talking. How many were there? One... Three, four, depending on how you count the daughters of Lot and his wife. Judgment came. God delivered, right? God delivered the blameless out of his judgment. He does not act indiscriminately. He's not evil. He's not cruel. He is not somehow harboring enmity against his people that Job is going to suggest in a little bit. Uh, no, God does not do these things. But Job says, look, if it's not him, then who? There's nobody as powerful as God. Nobody as sovereign as God. Verse 25, this, this uh, lament that he gets into that there's no, there's no hope. I might as well just die. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They don't see good. They sweep by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its food. Notice he talks about a runner. He talks about reed boats and he talks about an eagle. The fastest person on land, the fastest person or first fastest thing on the, on the water and the fastest thing in the air. No matter what it is, my life has gone by that fast. I can't even... I can't even find any comfort in it. He says, look, even if I said, verse 27, I'll forget about my musing, I'll forsake my sad countenance, and be cheerful. You know, put on a happy face. Just smile, smile, smile. He says, if I tried that, I'm afraid of all my pains, verse 20. I know you'll not acquit me. I can't just put on a happy face. I can't just carry on. Because it's not about the stuff. It's about the relationship. How is a man, how can a man, verse 2 again, how can man be on the right before God? You will not acquit me. You will not find me innocent. And look, if I'm going to be accounted wicked, a wicked person, then what am I even working so hard for? Why should I toil to be a godly, blameless person if it's all for nothing? If it's all in vanity. Put a parenthesis, Psalm 73. I've mentioned so many times. Why does Asaph, why, why, if God blesses the evil and, and condemns the righteous, why am I struggling so much? Why am I striving toiling to be a blameless person when it doesn't matter. God condemns them both and even enjoys destroying the godly people. 
He says, even if I were to clean myself up, wash myself with snow, cleanse my hands with lye, even so, you would make me filthy right again. You'd plunge me into the pit, which could be a pit of like a cesspool, just disgusting, nasty business, or a reference to death or the grave. God would, either way, that, that Job tried to clean himself up and God says, no, I'm not going to accept that. You're going to die. You're going to be uh, violated. And even your clothes are going to hate you or despise you or bore you. So there's nothing that Job could do. His, his salvation does not come from himself. He says, verse 32, and this gets to the nub, really, of his, of his statement. God is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court for judgment together. There is no adjudicator, this translation says, no mediator between us. He is asking for a mediator. He says, I want somebody who can lay his hand upon both of us. That's a mediator who can, who can say, God, come on over here, and Job, you come on over here, and we're going to come to an agreement. Who is the person that can lay a hand on God? Nobody, except God himself. Who is the person, can, can, who's the mediator that can lay a hand on Job, except another mediator, somebody who's equal to Job? Wait a minute, somebody who's equal to Job and equal to God, bringing them together, impossible. Job has no hope. Wait a minute, doesn't he? Isn't there a mediator just like what Job is describing? Somebody who can lay a hand on both God and man and bring them together? 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. That's who Job is searching for. doesn't understand, doesn't know him by name, but that is his only hope, as he's referenced to here. This mediator, this one who can bring them to a resolution, the one who can satisfy the justice of God and the pleas for justice from man and say, this is what's going to happen. It's not just a judge, it's somebody who settles this, recon- this uh, quarrel by some measure of reconciliation. And how's the reconciliation going to happen? We'll see here in just a little bit. Uh, but Job is, is pining away for the God-man. And we have this confidence then that, verse 34, let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak, not fear him, but I'm not like that in myself. I don't have it. If this, if this justice, if this reconciliation is going to happen, it's going to happen from outside me. I can't manage this myself. I... I, I want to speak and not fear him, but I can't do it. My only hope is somebody to come to my aid. If you don't mind, I'm going to summarize very quickly uh, chapter 10 so we can move on uh, to um, the next guy. So far's argument. Essentially, we've seen this before. Job says there's no hope. There's never going to be a mediator to answer this in my, in my case. And so I hate my life. I, why does God contend with me? What does he, what does he have against me? Uh, is it good, verse 3, is it good that, to you that you oppress, that you reject the labor of your hands? Look, you made me, and now you, you don't care about me? And it goes on in chapter 10, verses 8 and following. You made me, and now you just neglect me. You put, him, put me on the shelf, and not just the shelf, but the ash heap, the, the pit of despair, of filth. Why don't you care about me? Verse 8 says, your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you now swallow me up? I thought I was made for your glory, and now you're killing me. Verse 9, remember, you made me as clay. You turn me into dust again? The question comes, and you can see this in different analogies. Remember how uh, Jeremiah, is it Jeremiah 18, I think, where God gives the example of, of a potter working with clay, and then it's, it's the, what he's making isn't good, so he destroys it and makes something else. Does not the potter have the right to do with the clay according to his design? Yes. Doesn't Paul say that? In Romans 3, same idea. God has the right. He's the potter. We're the clay. But Job says, wait a minute, you made me out of clay. You're going to turn me into dust again? 
If that's what pleases the Lord, yes. We're made of dust. He references that a few different times. The, verse 13, he gets at the heart of this thing. You concealed in your heart your enmity against me. I know that this is within you. In other words, Job says, you plot evil against me. You, you look for ways to make me suffer. God, I know you've concealed it. You have been a traitor to me. I mean, Job is obviously treading on very, uh, I was going to mix metaphors, treading on thin water, thin ice. You get the idea. Uh, that he, he's in a dangerous zone here, which is why Elihu, later in chapter 32, will confront him. Nobody has been able to shut this guy up because of what he's saying falsely about God. Let me try it now. Elihu does. And then, of course, God does it ultimately. Verse 14, if I sin, you take note of me, would not acquit me of guilt. You are looking all the time about my sin. Um, chapter, verse 16 says, you hunt me like a lion. You're just always on the prowl. You're always kind of changing. The lion is Job. The hunter is God. But he says, you are constantly looking for, for me. to what, what new vexation, what new suffering can we invent against Job, right? You would show your wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. I don't have any comfort from you. And so he ends the chapter by saying, why in the world was I ever born? Why'd you, why'd you bring me out and to into life. Why, didn't I, why wasn't I carried from womb to tomb? Verse 19. And he says, just let me alone. Wouldn't God just cease for a few of my days, withdraw from me that I have a little cheer, just whatever is left to me, whatever kind of joy and comfort I can find, God, just leave me alone before I go. And I shall not return, by the way, to the land of utter gloom. as a thick darkness itself with a shadow of death without order, which shines as a thick darkness. Seven times he uses five different terms for darkness. Right here in verses 20 and 21, 21 and 22. Land of darkness, shadow of death, utter gloom, thick darkness, uh, and even that idea of without order. This is just darkness. Just There's, there's no hope. There's no light. I can't understand anything about this. It's chaotic. But he says, that's what I expect. God, you better be, just leave me alone for a moment so I can take a breath and then die. Because that's my only hope. I know there's not going to be a mediator come to me to help me. I know there's not going to be any chance of me having justice from you. And so... Just kill me. Just kill me. Wait a minute. If we go back to Job's, or excuse me, Bildad's statement, verse 20 of chapter 8, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor will he strengthen the hand of the evildoers. Is that so? Is that a true statement? God will not reject a blameless man? God will not turn his back on a sinless person? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin. Jesus, in other words, was not just blameless by sacrifice. He covered his sin. He was without sin. He was perfect in every way. But God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. What did Bildad say? God will not reject a blameless man. Christ became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Job's plea, request, anguish for a mediator, we found in Christ. We have found him. And Job had to come to that realization that God is bigger than your little explanation. You're trying to, to figure out God. No, God does things for his own glory and for our good. And he is just, ultimately. You better regard the patience of God as salvation. You better recognize Job and all of us. Take your 
or excuse me, make your peace with God, not by cleaning up your, your act and, and becoming a righteous, blameless person in your, in your conduct, but running to Christ. He is that mediator. He is the one who can establish laying a hand on God, laying a hand on you, bringing you together in peace to reconcile because he paid the fine. He paid the debt. Sin must be condemned, must be uh, removed from God's presence. But we have, we can become the righteousness of God. Job asked the question, how can a man be right before God? Only through Christ. Only through Christ. Well, where's Christ in, in Job? All throughout. All throughout that. The, the whole book is about Christ being our mediator, being, be, being the foundation for our forgiveness, the hope of our resurrection. Job is intimating, aspiring to those things that the rest of the Bible unveils. Job is, in other words, laying the groundwork for, for everything that follows after him, from, from um, the works of Moses to David and to Paul and John. All that, all that stuff is resting on what Job is, is preparing us for. We need God's justice, but we also need his mercy. How does that work together? How can God be just and the justifier of people like me, mortal people? I'm not like God. How can I have any expectation through Christ alone? Call upon Christ. You don't have any guarantee that you'll make it home this afternoon you make it home to your physical home but you will enter eternity at some point make sure you enter not in your own righteousness i'm a good person no enter in by christ's righteousness by grace through faith in what christ has done that's your only hope our father in heaven we're so grateful for your truth wow it is a comfort to us and it has it will be rather a comfort to job in our perspective now it has been for years and years and years because he is in your presence and he is trusting in you and finding joy in you and we pray that we would emphasize or experience that same joy that he doesn't have yet but he will at that end a time in chapter 42 anyway recognizing who you are that you are great that you are beyond explanation that you are beyond anything that we just need to humbly bow before you trust you cast our own pride and arrogance and uh, appeals for blamelessness and appeals for justice aside and recognize the mercy that you show us through Christ. We pray that each soul here would be trusting you wholly, delighting in you, recognizing that one, that one there, that Jesus, he died for me. He is the mediator. He's my only hope. He's my only confidence in life and in death. I pray that you'd save and sanctify for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.